This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. We'll continue to bring you the latest uh, COVID news and developments as the pandemic impacts the world. But for the time being, we are shifting the focus to the global crisis that's front and center, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Today, the president's starting to take the gloves off when it comes to making Russia feel financial pain. And we should point out, by the way, that there is some concern because a lot of people in Ukraine have not been vaccinated uh, when it comes to COVID. And there is some concern in places like Poland and Hungary that as these refugees, some two million of them, have crossed the border from Ukraine, this could become a problem when it comes to uh, uh, the uh, Omicron variant of the coronavirus, just to, to mention that. Back to the war there uh, in Ukraine, the president of the United States is putting a ban on Russian oil imports into the U.S. Now, the goal is to rock the now fragile Russian economy even harder, but we'll also feel it here with ever-increasing gas prices. A doctor right here in Southern California was all set to head to Ukraine. That's a different story to help train civilians in combat medicine. But now he cannot go because the Russians might be after him, and we will talk to him too. We'll go back to Ukraine, talking with a woman who was forced to evacuate Kiev, doing what she can to help the war efforts. And we'll talk with a longtime-based Moscow reporter who got out of Russia after that uh, new press censorship law was put into place. We start, though, with President Biden and his ban on Russian oil. With us is John Rosen, global economic expert, business economist at the University of New Haven. Um, the U.S. only gets, I think, about 10 percent of its oil supplies from Russia. So will a ban have much of an impact? Not really. I mean, over the short term, there'll be a bit of an immediate hit in the United States. But it is, as you point out, our, the, the amount of oil we import from Russia is, uh, is pretty small. Uh, to the extent we import oil, most of the, our imports come from uh, uh, Canada now. Um, and as, as an interesting side issue, for, for reasons that just have to do with the logistics of the industry and so forth, the oil that comes into the U.S. from uh, Russia is largely not burnt as gasoline in cars. It's used uh, to manufacture plastics, which we export to other countries. So then we do it, what, to further send the message and add it on to the sanctions if it doesn't hurt them that much because we only import a little bit and we see our gas prices rise or was the president kind of boxed into this because members of congress were talking about doing it anyways or you know what we have to do it because every little bit more that we pile on the russians uh, is a good thing right now but i i think the the short answer to that is is all of the above um yes he was uh, receiving an awful lot of political pressure uh to to do this and it is at one level um pretty symbolic for the reason we talked about a moment ago. It's not that big. It's not that big to uh, a factor in our oil market, and it's not that big a factor to Russia's exports. The symbolism, however, is not at all trivial. If, as part of this, Biden is uh, trying to pressure our um, allies in uh, Europe to uh, also boycott Russian oil, that would have a huge impact on both sides of the equation. Ah, uh, yes, but, but, yes, but therein lies the rub, uh, because yes. while the U.K. is sort of saying it's going to reduce 
whatever that mm-hmm. means, its dependence by the end of the year. Uh, mm-hmm. Our other allies, uh, while they've been steadfast in being unified with all the other sanctions, there's a marked departure when it comes to oil and gas from Russia when it comes to most of the other Western European countries, right? Without without question, a huge portion of the oil and natural gas used by our allies in most of Western Europe, a huge portion of it comes from Russia. So on the one hand, if they were to boycott, it would hurt Russia. But on the other hand, they would have massive shortages of oil and natural gas in Europe. And not to put too fine a point on it, it's winter in Europe. <laughs> you can see <laughs> right. why yeah. you can see why they're a little hesitant to join a boycott, right? Any chance that there's a backfire here and Putin says, you know what, I'm going to turn off the tap to Europe, so take that, or can he not afford to do that because, you know, it cuts both ways? Right. It, it absolutely cuts both ways. I suppose he could do it. I mean, he's already proven he can do things that at least we in the West would think are pretty irrational. But, you know, if he were to, if he were to cut it off, if he were to say, I'm not going to sell you any, yes, it would certainly hurt the European countries and their economies, but it would also hurt his because he wouldn't be getting any revenue for the gas and oil that otherwise he would be selling. And to fight a war costs a lot of money. He needs money. John Rosen, global economic experts, business economist, University of New Haven. If you filled up your car's gas tank at any point over the last week, we don't have to tell you. Gas prices are insanely expensive right now, and all indications are that prices will continue to increase. Doesn't seem to be a price ceiling. The just-announced ban on Russian oil imports could make things even worse here in Southern California and the rest of the U.S. John Paisy president of Stratus Advisors, a global energy sector consultancy firm. So how high can gas prices go, John? Well, we could see, based on what we have now, with the more effective and broader the sanctions on Russia exports of crude and refined type products and feedstocks, we can get, we would expect that you could see oil start to move up to 145 and could all go all the way up to 190 to $200 per barrel before you would have a, uh, enough of a destruction in demand to bring the market back down to a more normal level of prices. So we, we, we think that uh, that is a possibility at this point, given how effective, again, the sanctions are uh, on Russian oil. So, yeah, that's the could. Is it is it actually the expectation? And then, of course, the higher that goes, the more of a translation we get at the pump here, because we keep hearing two different things. Number one, prices are going to go up. And number two, you know, the Russian oil doesn't make up that much of our what we bring in. So, I mean, is it just going to happen anyways? Well, the, it's a global market. So really, the U.S. is a small user of of Russia oil and in at this point, we, we only import around 650,000 barrels a day, roughly, maybe a little more, sometimes a little less. But, but uh, Russia exports over 6 million to 8 million barrels a day of, of, of crude oil. The more difficult it is to place those barrels in the market, and where you've already seen where a company like Shell was criticized heavily and said they're not going to buy any more cargoes of, of uh, Russian crude, then, then, then perception is starting to become reality with this issue of not being on place the barrels already in a very tight market, and therefore that risk of of future uh, security of supply is starting to become reality. You know, the uh, the White House is clearly uh, worried 
about how a spike in oil prices are, are going to be perceived by the American public because they're already trying to get out this slogan that it's the Putin spike, uh, which means <laughs> that the White House is really concerned. You're talking about how much per barrel oil prices could go up. What would that translate roughly as an average at the pump level, do you think? Well, in the U.S., on average, it'd be about $6 per gallon. And then California, of course, has higher prices because of the issues around logistics and, and the, and the, and the uh, gasoline specification and some of the other things around taxes and so forth that make gasoline more expensive in California. So you're going to see six. If you got to that level, you'd see $6 gasoline. Also, we, we have less. What, what essentially we got is demand is back to where it was pre-COVID, but we have a, a, a smaller refining sector in the U.S., and, uh, and, 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 and we have inventory levels low, both in gasoline and diesel relatively low. So you're going to have a tight market. And uh, until you can dis, uh, destroy enough demand, you're going to push the price up. So we always so hear. And the pains are, and, and the pains are going to be felt by those who must use gasoline. Uh, now, there is some discretionary use of gasoline that will go away at, when prices get high enough. But it's going to take a while to get prices high enough for that to happen. So we always hear, you know, oh, just ramp up more, go and drill more, open up more sectors or, or go find your oil elsewhere. But all those things, of course, they take time to do. Yeah, there is nobody out there that has oil that they can just crank about, except for some of the members in the Arab Gulf. Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, they have some additional spare capacity, but but that they could bring onto the market. But they also have to, to worry about the 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 relationships and the coordination that they have going on within OPEC plus, which includes Russia. And if you remember, not too long ago, oil prices dropped below zero because when Russia and OPEC didn't have a deal. Uh, the market was uh, there uh, was oversupplied and the prices crashed. So that Saudi Arabia has to think longer term also in the other Gulf members. So that is, that's another part that comes into their calculus deciding how they approach this. John Pacey there, uh, president of uh, Stratus Advisors, a global energy sector consultancy firm. Some of the, the interviews, you know, lately with uh, rideshare drivers saying, here's what I used to make. And then plus the, with the gas, here's what I'm making now. Yeah. I'm going to go find another gig because yeah. I can't drive right take, now. Taking yeah. a real head. And people, by the way, you know, for years now, buying larger vehicles, SUVs, has been right. the, the norm. That's the thing, yeah. And wow, they're going to take a hit. Short break, and then we're talking to a couple of people who are on the move. One, a Ukrainian woman forced to flee her hometown of Kiev. Another, an American journalist leaving Russia after the harsh censorship laws. A group of Southern California doctors headed to Ukraine to train civilians in combat medicine. Dr. Dan Olesnicki from the Palm Spring Rancho Mirage area was supposed to go to. His parents are from Ukraine. He's part of the organizing effort for this. Uh, his life, though, would be in danger if he went. The doctor with us now. Uh, guessing this is because the Russians caught on to your mission there? Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> unfortunately, my, uh, my fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you are in my family, um, essentially... Um, you know, my, my identity is compromised. So I, we figured something was wrong when Russia started hacking our social media accounts and uh, everyone who's associated with this. Um, but I'm, I'm the only one who's compromised. We've, we've kept operational security for everyone. 
so nobody else is in danger. So I, I get left in the rear with the gear. <laughs> well, I, 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 are you concerned for your safety here in the U.S.? Um, no, not at all. I mean, you know, they're they're using terrorist tactics to try and, uh, you know, mess with or ha hack our bank accounts. They're trying to uh, mess with social media. God knows what. But it, it just shows that we are uh, we're getting to them. So what we're doing is pissing them off and they're trying to do cyber attacks. Um, but, you know, we we're smart. We we're protecting our money. The banks have been informed. And, uh, you know, the money is, is protected at this point. So, you know, stuff like that. Surprised at all that they would reach all the way over to you trying to do this or just, you know what, it's uh, par for the course. It's par for the course. It's what we expected. This is what they're talking about, cyber attacks. And anyone they deem who is an enemy of the state, they will do that to. Uh, and so this is 21st century business as usual if you're uh, standing up for something. But I'm curious, you say you were expecting it. If you were expecting it, why did you go ahead and, and, and try to do it? Uh, so, you know, I had to start getting the word out on the medical kits. So it was a known risk that we that I, I would be compromised. But uh, having worked in the special operations community, um, you know, I, I was essentially designated as the, uh, the face uh, and uh, we made sure that nobody else could be compromised. So we don't, nobody else's information is out there. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing. It's a, it's a two-part thing. We mentioned one, you mentioned the other, right? So first off, get over there and train some of the civilians in combat medicine in what to do to, to treat people fast and, and, and in the best way possible. And then second, you're, you're putting together all these kits of supplies to, to get over there. Correct. So what the the first step is actually to create the kits because it's hard to treat anyone if you don't have any supplies so what we did is uh just on sunday alone we were working with the ukrainian cultural center in los angeles um, we had uh, received a ton of donations from uh, americans uh, as far as supplies the largest uh, group actually that donated was the parents of the united states naval academy who stepped up and they bought thousands and thousands of dollars worth of supplies. And we created 5,000 medical kits uh, pretty much alone on Sunday in Los Angeles. So that was step one. And our team, uh, I can't give dates uh, if they've left already, if they're leaving or when they'll, they'll be there. But uh, the idea is to train civilians to be combat medics uh, and help people in the field. So that is a medical relief mission. Uh, that that we've organized. And this doesn't sound like the first time you've done something like this. How did you get into this? Uh, so I'm an emergency physician by training, and I was recruited into law enforcement uh, 20 years ago in 2001, uh, around the time of the 9/11 um, disaster in New York. I was actually a resident uh, in Newark Beth Israel Medical Center, and we watched the planes hit across the river. Uh, having been an EMT, we were actually dispatched uh, to aid in uh, the 9-11 disaster. But after that, I was recruited by law enforcement and uh, uh, became a SWAT team member uh, over in Clifton, New Jersey, and then uh, later on came out to California. So I've been in the special operations community for about 20 years doing uh, SWAT medicine or tactical medicine. Do you still need stuff for the kits and, and how do people get that to you? So we still need stuff for the kits. Um, the, we, it, um, I think we're going to be taking more donations through uh, the Ukrainian Cultural Center or other, um, other um, 
relief organizations. The one we're working with cl uh, closest right now is Razom for Ukraine, R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine. They're legit, they, they make sure every cent counts. They're not only helping us acquire the, um, the materials for the kits, but they're helping us ship them out. So I, I would definitely uh, donate for, to Razom for Ukraine. That's, that's definitely a big thing. And you know we've created, uh, we created 5,000 kits, but there's uh, 44 million people in Ukraine um, that are um, you know, being bombed or, or trying to evacuate and the injuries are stacking up, especially with uh, uh, people trying to evacuate from um, uh, residential areas that are now being bombed. So we're gonna need these kits for a long time, uh, especially if it spills over into the rest of Europe. Dr. Uh, Dan Olesniki there, Palm Springs Rancho Mirage area, thanks. We head back to Ukraine right now, where the war is putting Ukrainians in increasingly harsh and dangerous ways. The United Nations says the number of refugees has reached 2 million, making it the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Not everybody's leaving, though. Anastasia is with us, and um, we're talking to her from west of Kiev. She fled there. She's a creative and motion designer, uh, went west to find safety as Russian forces get closer to the capital. Where, uh, again, roughly are you right now? Uh, hi. Uh, nice to be here with you tonight. Uh, well, it's night here in Ukraine for the moment. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm staying in western Ukraine, and it's the city of Uzhard, which is, I guess, one of the safest places to stay here uh, for the moment, as this is, like, one of the most western parts, and it's, like, the farthest, like, point from the Russian border, which is, like, the point of invasion. Uh, so, yeah, here it is safe for the moment. Okay, and you were in Kiev. Is that where you live and, and you had to go because it's not yeah, obviously yeah. a safe place to be right now? Yeah, I was born in Kiev. I was raised in Kiev, and I lived all my life in Kiev, well, except for traveling. And, yeah, like roughly two weeks ago, slightly less, uh, well, the Kiev started to be bombed and obviously like it's I'm not really sure if it was the right decision to leave Kiev because for the moment it is more or less okay there I mean like in the center of Kiev like the main uh, fights and bombings are taking place on the borders of Kiev like on the small towns which surround Kiev and the Kiev itself is well I'm not sure if I can say okay because there are some like distractions already also, but it's not that bad. And uh, yeah, I was I decided to leave Kiev for a safer place to stay, uh, like in Western Ukraine. But it is uh, very difficult to find a place to stay here. Well, because a lot of people are getting out of their towns and cities from all of the Ukraine and. Yes, yeah, some are going abroad and some are staying in Ukraine and like small piece of Western Ukraine cannot. Right. And Anastasia, I, I, yeah. Anastasia, I was going to ask you that, that uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you left you left Kiev. You're now yeah. in, in Western Ukraine. But I think the latest figures from the United Nations, something like two million people from Ukraine, from your country, have now left and have gone to uh, Poland, Hungary. Why are you staying in Ukraine, or are you planning on leaving? 
Uh, I'm not planning to leave for the moment because it is my country and here I can do something to help. Well, from abroad, I would be able to do something as well, like volunteer or something like this. But I mean, uh, that would be like the the last measure to leave Ukraine. Uh, and yeah, a lot of people are asked like by local authorities to leave Ukraine because uh Western Ukraine cannot hold all the refugees from all the other parts of Ukraine because Ukraine has about like 45 million people. And just imagine all of these people trying to get on like the third part of Ukraine. That's physically not possible. Right. They can't all fit. I was going to ask you that. I mean, when you have been on the move and going, we've heard from people before saying, you know, I I went to the next city over or or further out, you know, and this is a a six hour car ride, a seven hour usually. And it took me two days to get there. I mean, what's it like to be in this mass of people that's that's on the move? Uh, I was leaving on the train and it was like uh, nine people in like two places. Uh, room and people were sitting on the floor they were sitting just like everywhere where possible on the train there were like huge crowds uh, in the train station because well the trains do not need tickets for these days these are like evacuation trains so everybody could just get on like in the crowd uh so, and Sejan, you, you, yeah. you have uh, you have a, a family in in Ukraine, uh, uh, hu- husband, boyfriend, partner, whatever. Uh, yeah, like boyfriend, and we are here together. And uh, my family, they also like part of my family stayed in Kiev, and the other part, to, like my parents, they left Kiev as well, and they're staying in another city because, well. Once again, it's really difficult to find a place to stay uh, in Western Ukraine. So we're living, we're seven people who were living in Kiev. And now everybody's staying just in like different towns and cities here because it wasn't possible to stay together. I was going to say, so two weeks ago, you were all a tightly knit family, right? You, your boyfriend, your your parents, and all living in uh, pretty much the same place, and now you're not. You're uh, scattered. No, no, no. Uh, we weren't living, like, together. No, 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 but you like, were living in the same people. city. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but now you're... in the same city, and, yeah, I've got, like, lots of friends who are staying just, like, in totally different parts of Ukraine now, uh, even though everybody lived in Kiev, <laughs> and now everybody is just like distributed through cities in Kiev and in like the nearest Europe because some people went away to other countries and some went away right before and not even like because of the war but somebody was on holidays and they just couldn't get home afterwards. Wow yeah. Um, yeah. How worried are you about the people who did stay in Kiev? Some of your friends obviously it's it's the main target, even if it's, you know, you were saying earlier, you can't tell if it's totally safe or not safe. It's, you know, it's it's what the Russians want to go and surround. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, well, people hear bombings every day. Uh, they hear missiles and everybody is already used to going to shelters every night. Uh, well, because people need to sleep anyway, so it's not that they can just stay up all the time. So, yeah, and, you know, it's like for the first days, of course, everybody was terrified, like, very much. But then people just, at to some point, they just got used 
And now they're just like reporting like, oh, there have been like bombings we hear, we heard explosions and so on. Um, what is the toll, Anastasia, on on you and your your loved ones and your friends? I know you've said already that you've scattered sort of all over the place and, and you're not living in the same city. But the emotional drain and the emotional toll must be very significant, I would think, on all of you. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, it's really difficult to concentrate on something. Uh, well, I'm really lucky to still have my job because I work for a British companies, so I still have my job, but I, it's really, really difficult to try to do it. I mean, well, of course, they understand the situation, but for example, for me, this is like for the first day, I couldn't, like, open my laptop because I couldn't, like, concentrate on anything. And the only thing I could think I could do was, like, physical work or something like this. Well, because you cannot, like, think properly because, I guess, for the first three nights or something like this, I, get, I barely got sleep at all. And, well, of course, that takes both emotional and physical toll. Um, some people panic, some people try to stay strong, but just fail at some point. And you can see people who are really, really strong and they just hold on. And then at some point they just fail and start crying because of some like small thing. Uh, well, just because I don't think that anybody can just, nobody's like emotions can just hold all everything which is happening because uh, well, some people have already lost people that they knew or their friends or relatives, or some people have seen their houses being bombed. And for example, I have found out that one like gym place that I used to go was already ruined. And that is when you hear something like this, <laughs> you, of course, you're shocked. And but I guess everybody is still trying to stay strong and not to let the emotions take over because it's like everything, all the emotions will be after. For now, it's everybody needs to just hold on their lives and try to do something helpful. Is it kind of a relief that you're at least somewhere safer and you can settle down and, and try and figure out your next steps? Or are you worried, you know, already thinking ahead, well, now I might have to move again in a few days or in a few weeks. And also I'm thinking it must be so weird and surreal to leave your town, get on the train, packed with people, get to the West, and then it's like, oh, I got to open my work laptop and go through these emails now. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I that, just that went is, through all this, is, now I got to look at my emails. Yeah, that's really weird. And, you know, at like on the first day when I woke up at like five in, or six in the morning from a call telling that the war has started and that Kiev is being bombed, I just, I don't know, in an hour or something, I wrote my, like, work chat, something like, sorry, I won't be available for work today because my city is being bombed. <laughs> and that, yeah. It's ridiculous. Uh, I, 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 that, I, that is really surreal. Yeah. You know, uh, many people outside of Ukraine uh, were are surprised that Ukrainians have held the massive Russian army relatively at bay as long as they have. I mean, many people thought the Russians are going to come in and, and pretty quickly 
take over uh, much or not the entire country. Apparently, that's what Vladimir Putin thought. Are you surprised at how resilient uh, your countrymen and women have been so far? Uh, you know, nowadays, uh, they don't even accept new people in the army because they already have large queues for people who want to fight, who want to resist, just because everybody, I guess every Ukrainian is really, really angry right now because it's like all their peaceful life has been interrupted. And I guess most of these people just couldn't believe it before it started because they have been like warnings and some people knew that something was coming, but nobody expected like a full-scale war to come over the whole country. And now people are just really, really furious. And even like the most peaceful people I know, they want to fight. They want to, like some people want to join the army and the others just support. And Anastasia, did your, did your view of, I'm just curious, did your view of Vladimir Putin change? Did you even think much about him before two weeks ago? And, and what do you think of him now? Well, um, I guess there were a few people in Ukraine who favored Vladimir Putin because uh, he, he has told so many lies about Ukraine, which were obvious even before. And, well, for Ukraine, it has been an issue for a lot of years now because Russia has taken over the Crimea uh, about eight years ago. And it was less bloody than now. It was um, it was better organized. But anyway, this has been a part of Ukraine. And now Russia considers it their part. And now they want to make the same thing with the whole country. Uh, but people haven't resisted like that like eight years ago, but they do now. And that is like the main difference. And well, of course, uh, me, the same as like all the people in Ukraine for now, uh, just literally hate all the like Russian government and people who stand for all this, which is happening because, like, you have your life one day, and then you just realize that nothing that you are used to exists anymore, and you don't know. Like, of course, this war may be over, like, in a week or two. I don't know. I have no idea. Or in a year, well, but the life won't be normal for many, many years from now. Anastasia lives there in Crane, left Kiev, is now over to the West. Anastasia, we hope you stay safe and uh, and stay strong. And thank you so much for, for coming to the phone thank and you. talking to us. Yeah, thank you for listening. Of course. Anastasia there in Ukraine, uh, Kiev resident, and uh, her family, friends scattered in different towns. Some of them left, some of them abroad, can't get back. So uh, we thank her for her time. Most Western reporters working in Russia got out of the country quickly because of new laws that were passed. They call for prison time over how they covered the war in Ukraine. Yeah, for years, Felix Leitz reported for CBS News in the Moscow Times while living in Russia's capital city. Not anymore. He's in the U.K. outside of London, joins us from there. So you had to get out of Russia quick. Um, again, remind people why there was such a rush to, to get out among the, the Western journalists. Yeah, good afternoon. Well, so, you know, uh, as sort of things escalated last week, you know, the, the course of the military campaign in Ukraine, but also 
uh, the sort of the, the, the dimensions of repression at home really ramped up. I think a lot of people made the decision, a lot of Western journalists, but also Russian journalists, made that decision to leave. You know, the Russian government had made their, their position clear sort of throughout this conflict that this was not, quote, a war uh, or an invasion or an onslaught. All these words were sort of deemed essentially fake news. Uh, and we were sort of obligated to cover the war in terms sort of agreeable to the Russian government, which basically meant uh, calling it a, a special operation. You know, this this quite ridiculous kind of euphemism. Uh, we weren't allowed to sort of uh, report on the war using uh, anything other than what had been published by the Russian Defense Ministry, which were these kind of ludicrously uh, understated uh, casualty figures. So we weren't allowed to sort of uh, use our own reporting in any way. And I think a lot of people sort of saw when, when Putin signed this law into effect, I think last Friday, uh, there was a real worry that I think this law would be applied to sort of foreign journalists. You know, foreign journalists had always been spared a little bit from the repression uh, visited upon Russian colleagues in Russia. Uh, but sort of the, it was made very clear to us by the authorities that this law, which, which provides for up to 15 years imprisonment, I should say, uh, would apply to us as well. So myself and many other colleagues made a decision towards the end of last week to get out of Russia pretty quickly. Yeah. How fast did you go and what was that like, I imagine? Because this is, this is not like it was an easy time to get flights out of there either. So... <laughs> No, absolutely. So, you know, European airspace was basically closed. So what you had was sort of just flights to Turkey, flights to Armenia, a couple of other sort of former Soviet republics, you know, but they were all enormously expensive. You know, we saw things like flights to Armenia, flights to Yerevan going for about uh, $3,000 a piece, you know, for one way. So it was an extraordinary time because there were a lot of rumors in Russia at the time as well that Putin was sort of on the brink of imposing some kind of martial law, which, you know, would be sort of military-aged men being stopped from leaving the country, uh, you know, some kind of closure of the borders. So sort of certainly Thursday last week when I left, there was a lot of panic, you know, a lot of fear that sort of uh, the, the really the sort of the Iron Curtain was coming down and Russia's sort of uh, window on the outside world was closing. And, uh, you know, flights were sort of picked, were packed out. There were an enormous number of planes sort of running out as the airlines really sort of moved to kind of capitalize on the, the flood of sort of uh, people leaving. And, and really what we see in a lot of these countries, places like Georgia, is we see an enormous number of Russian emigres. You know, we've sort of seen the Georgian government say that I think in about three days, 25,000 Russians crossed the border. So a huge sort of wave of emigration of sort of educated, you know, political, opposition-minded Russians in these last few days. So now, of course, the problem for the West is how do we get, can we get news out of, out of Russia with all of you folks gone? Well, you know, it really remains to be seen, to be honest. I mean, I was, I was very pleased to see today that the BBC, which had sort of suspended its operations in Russia, has sort of gone back on that decision. They've made the decision to continue work there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of assurances they've been given, if any at all. Uh, so there are a number of news organizations still operating, but I think a lot of people are still figuring out how to negotiate this law. You know, it's a really quite sort of uh, unprecedented situation. You know, the New York Times today announced they were pulling their journalists out of the country. And that's the first time the New York Times has not had a reporter in Russia since, I believe, 1921. So an extraordinary sort of, uh, you know, 
move and an extraordinary sort of break with, with, with a century of continuity there. So it is going to be harder in the future, and we are going to see sort of uh, more sort of, uh, you know, scripted narratives, I think, coming out of Moscow and less sort of independent reporting. And that is a shame because, you know, the Russia story is probably the most important one in the world right now with this war in Ukraine. And so uh, I certainly hope to get back as soon as I can, as soon as sort of uh, statuses are, are clarified a little bit by the Russian authorities. CBS News reporter Felix Light. Felix, thanks. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Stitcher. Stitcher.